Hello everybody, welcome back for another true crime video. Um, I think this is going to be a pretty interesting one. <laughs> also, just as a disclaimer, there is a snowstorm going on right now and there's quite a bit of wind sound coming from my fire. But I think it might actually kind of add <laughs> to the story, given where it takes place. So I hope you enjoy. Um, get comfortable, get relaxed, and let's get into it. So tonight's story starts in a tiny little place called Aklavik. Now Aklavik is what's known as a hamlet. And a hamlet, it's like a really, really small place that is neither a city or a town, and it's even smaller than a village. So that's what a hamlet is. And this little hamlet is located in the Inuvik region of the Northwest Territories. And if you don't know, um, the Northwest Territories, that is a territory located in Canada. So, um, this teeny tiny little hamlet located in the Canadian Arctic is home to a gravesite belonging to one of Canada's most notorious criminals. And the interesting part is that I believe it's 94 years later, even until today, um, his true identity is completely unknown. So, the criminal that I'm talking about, his known name, or at least, like, his alias, is Albert Johnson, but his nickname um, what he's most well known for, or known by, is the Mad Trapper of Rat River. So, Albert Johnson, or the Mad Trapper, he led the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP for short, across the Canadian Arctic on a seven-week-long manhunt. And this is still known today as the longest manhunt ever conducted in this country's history. So it's a pretty interesting case. So the first reports of Albert were in the summer of 1931, and he had traveled down the Peel River, and he had stopped at a trading post in what is called the Fort McPherson area. And he was quickly described by locals as being just super standoffish, um, very rude, very cold. And in this area of Canada, because it is and was so sparsely populated and it's just such a harsh, scary environment, you know, people in this area were generally pretty friendly with one another. Um, it, it was beneficial to be sociable with your neighbors, 
in the event that you ever needed help. So it was just quickly noted that he was a newcomer and he was very cold, very rude. People also described him as, there's kind of some conflicting reports, but some people described him as having a Scandinavian accent, while others described him as having um, a very, very faint Scandinavian accent. Um, as in, like, maybe his parents were from Scandinavia, and he had possibly picked it up. And then a couple other people were 100% certain that he was Swedish. So, somewhere in Scandinavia. But again, the, co- the reports are conflicting. He was also described as being pretty clean-shaven, um, just like a tidy beard, and he also had really nice teeth. Um... But it was also very clear that he had spent a long time out in the Canadian wild. Like, his clothing and his skin was very dirty. It was obvious that he'd been living, you know, in the wild for a long time. Um, Also, even though he was reported as being only between the ages of 30 and 35, it was noted that his skin on his face was very prematurely aged and just very weather-worn. So it was obvious that he um, was just living a little bit of a rough life, I guess you could say. And strangely, he was also carrying several thousand dollars in cash. And this may not have been, like, super strange, but it was something that was noticed pretty quickly because this was right in the middle of the Great Depression, um, and he was carrying a lot of cash on him for somebody who was just kind of wandering amongst the Canadian Arctic. (laughs) So, um, he went to the trading post, and he began talking with the person working there. Um, very, a man of very few words, though because again, he was very cold and aloof, but it was obvious that he was buying supplies to build a cabin, Um, and he wanted to live in complete isolation, literally in the middle of nowhere. So he bought his supplies with the cash that he had on him, and he made his way back down to the river to travel to the area where he wanted to build. He very quickly caught the attention of Constable Millen, was his name, Um, and he noticed Albert buying supplies to build a cabin, and he went over to Mr. Johnson and he introduced himself. And I think the main reason that he introduced himself was because he was an RCMP officer, and it was his duty um, to tell Albert that hey, it looks like you're going to be living out in the wilds, which is fine, but you're going to need to buy a license for trapping, hunting, and fishing. Because at the time, um, it still is today very much so, but right then, in 1931, trapping, hunting, and fishing were very highly regulated. So... 
If you were a member of the First Nations, you were allowed to hunt, trap, fish any day of the week, any day of the year. However, there had been such a huge influx of outsiders coming into the area to hunt, trap, and fish, especially trapping, which is the big one. Um, a number of people had been coming in to do this because during the Depression, it was one of the best ways to make money if you knew how to do it. So a lot of people also assumed that Albert Johnson was probably like a really experienced trapper and that was why he had so much money on him. So again, the RCMP officer noted this and he said, um, you know, if you're going to be in the area, that's fine, but you have to get a trapping license. Mr. Johnson uh, did not respond very kindly to this. He made it very obvious that he was not a fan of the police. He did not want to engage in a conversation with him and he did not buy a trapping license. He wasn't really doing anything wrong, however, so Constable Millen said goodbye and Albert Johnson went on his way. So he traveled down the river to an area called Rat River and that was where he built his cabin. Um, and it's important because it comes into play that this area where he built his cabin was not like just a nice little stroll away from Aklavik. It was, this was like a two to three day journey. So it was really far away and it was literally in the middle of nowhere. So the summer passes, they go through fall and then the very harsh Canadian winter is upon them. So, two days before Christmas, um, two members of the Lachoux First Nations tribe come forward to the police headquarters in Aklavik, and they say, hey, somebody has been messing with our traps. And remember, this is completely illegal especially if you don't have a trapping license. So this was a really big deal. Um, and the members of the Lishu tribe said that their traps along Rat River had been destroyed. They had been intentionally tripped. They had been hung from trees. And in other cases, their traps had been picked up moved or thrown away and replaced with somebody else's traps. So this was like devastating to them because this was their livelihood as well as their their survival. And to have somebody mess with your traps in the middle of winter in the Arctic was really, really bad. And they said, and I quote, they were 100% certain that it was the creepy new guy living in the cabin. May have got the quote a little bit wrong, <laughs> but they said that they were 100% certain that the person who had been setting their traps off and messing with them, it was the creepy new guy living alone in the cabin, which was Albert Johnson. So, members of the tribe had gone to his cabin just to have like a civil conversation with him 
and they were instantly met with a rifle pointed in their faces. So they left the matter alone, and they brought it to the police. And the police took this really seriously because, again, it was illegal to trap or mess with traps. Um, illegal if you didn't have a license, but I'm sure you know what I was saying. <laughs> so, the day after Christmas, two police officers named Alfred King and Special Constable Joe Bernard, they made the 80-mile journey through the snow, through sub-zero temperatures, to go and have a chat with Albert. Um, and remember, this was like a two to three day journey on sleds with snow dogs in the Canadian Arctic in sub-zero temperatures. And um, Albert wasn't even really in any trouble yet because they didn't have any proof that it had been him. And they even went there with the mindset that, like, hey, he could have just made a mistake. There aren't really any signs around the Rat River area saying you can't trap or you can't mess with traps. Maybe he just made an honest mistake. So anyway, they arrive at the cabin and they describe it as being pretty creepy. Because remember, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, they said it had smoke bellowing from its little chimney, so they knew that Albert was probably home, and they just wanted to talk with him. He wasn't in any major trouble yet, they just needed to have a civil conversation. So the cabin was pretty small, it was only 8 by 10 feet, and it was really oddly built. Um, they said that part of it seemed to be sunken into the gravel by a few feet, which was really weird. Um, but the weirdest thing was that at every corner on the walls, there were holes, like circles drilled or carved into the walls. And they were like all the perfect size for a rifle to fit through. And that was just so odd because the temperatures there get so cold. Why would you ever drill holes in the wall of your cabin while you're trying to keep the heat in? So, anyway, Officer King approached the door and he saw that Albert had left some snowshoes and stuff like that, some trapping and hunting equipment outside, so he knew that he was home um, and he knocked on the door. He announced that he was a police officer but Albert wasn't in any trouble, they just needed to have a quick word with him, and there was no answer. <laughs> Instead, and this kind of gives me the creeps, but they said Albert's face appeared in the snowy, frosted window, and he just kind of stared at them with these, like, really dark, empty eyes, and he didn't say anything, and he refused to come outside. And he even kind of barricaded the window with, I think it was a potato sack or something like that. And yeah, he didn't come out and talk to them. So this was pretty irritating to the police officers because it meant that they would have to travel all the way back to Aklavik and get a search warrant because obviously he 
might have been hiding something. Um, so they, they had to talk with them because it was a serious matter. And so, despite how annoying it was, um, the two officers traveled back to Aklavik and they spoke with, what was his name? Inspector Eames, who was, I believe, in charge of the RCMP district um, in that area. So they spoke with him and Eames grew a little bit concerned when he heard the description of what the cabin looked like and also just he was a little bit worried because um, he just didn't know how Albert was going to react to being presented with a search warrant because he was obviously a recluse who I had spent already the entire winter all by himself and he just wanted his men to be safe. So he insisted that the two officers bring an extra two people with them, just in case. Um, better to be safe than sorry. And so, um, two more men came with them, and their names were McDowell, as well as a member, Constable McDowell, he was a police officer as well as a member of the Lishu tribe named Lazarus, I'm going to get this last name wrong, Siti Chiulis, I believe. Lazarus Siti Chiulis. I'm so sorry if I get that wrong. Okay, anyway, so the four men take off, they make the huge trek all the way back to the cabin. When the officers arrive, kind of the same thing. There's smoke coming from the chimney. It's obvious that Albert is home. And Officer King approaches the door again. And again, he tries to keep the situation very calm. He doesn't want to make a big deal of it. Again, they just need to have a conversation with this man. So he knocks on the door pretty calmly, and he announces, Hey, it's the RCMP. We just need to talk with you about a trapping matter. Like, it's really not a big deal. Please come outside, and we'll have a chat. But again, Albert does not answer them. And so, um, he gets a little bit irritated, and he says, Okay, we have a search warrant, and I'm going to be forced to enforce it if you don't come out. So, like, come on, just come on out. <laughs> but again, there's no answer, and he doesn't come out. And so, Officer King begins to break the door down. He starts banging on it really roughly, and that was when Albert Johnson fired a rifle through the front door, striking Officer King directly in the chest and sending him backwards into the snow. And so, um, fellow officer McDowell, he had been standing quite a ways back from the door, just kind of watching it, and he immediately began giving King cover fire, um, shooting at the cabin door so that King could crawl away to the tree line for cover. 
and while McDowell continued engaging in a firefight basically through the door with Johnson, um, officers or Officer Bernard and Lazarus, they quickly attended to King's gunshot wound. They stopped the bleeding as best as they could, got him strapped to a dog sled, and made the trip all the way back to Aklavik in record time. And they, like, miraculously, against a raging snowstorm, against the temperatures outside, and against a bullet wound from a rifle, um, they got him to the hospital and they saved his life. So, thank God that Inspector Eames, it actually kind of gives me goosebumps that he, like, had a sixth sense that something was gonna go wrong, because if he had not sent the two extra men, Officer King probably would not have made it back. So thank God that the four of them were okay. However, they now knew that <laughs> they were dealing with somebody really dangerous and probably not in their right state of mind if he was willing to shoot and kill an RCMP officer over a simple trapping matter. Um, and because of this, because they now knew that they were dealing with somebody really dangerous, um, Inspector Eames, he himself decided to lead a large party of men back to the cabin again for the third time to arrest Albert Johnson, obviously for having shot a police officer. So the group that Inspector Eames got together to go back to the cabin for the third time included himself as well as nine men or excuse me, the nine men included Eames himself. Um, and this included fellow officers, some guides, and just people who really knew the area really well. And they also brought 42 dogs with them, I guess, to be able to get them there and back in kind of record time. And they also brought dynamite with them. <laughs> and this was in case... Um, I guess they thought if Albert Johnson starts firing again, we won't be able to get close to the cabin, so we're going to bring dynamite. And so they made the journey and they arrived a couple or a few days later. Now, apparently the cabin was built close enough to the river that the men were able to and did use the riverbank, um that bent around the cabin on both sides, they use this as cover. So when they arrived, all of the men got down into the riverbank and kind of hid there for cover. And Inspector Eames stood outside of the riverbank, I guess, and he announced that they were there. And again, just like Officer King had, he tried to keep the situation very calm he didn't want to make Albert panic, um, and he just said that we need to speak with you, please come outside, and he even went so far as to tell him that he wasn't in any major trouble because the officer that he had shot hadn't died, 
So they just needed him to come out and have a conversation. But of course, Albert refused. He did not come out of the cabin and he did not say anything. He was silent. Officer or Inspector Eames continued to command that he come out. And when he didn't, he even started to tell him, hey, there is nine of us. There's only one of you. This is not a fight you're going to win. You need to come out now. And Albert still refused. So with that, Inspector Eames, I guess, gave the signal to his men. The men got up from the riverbank and they started making their way towards the cabin. As soon as they started making their way towards the cabin, that was when Albert began firing at them. And that was exactly what he had made the holes in the cabin wall for. They were, I guess, rifle holes. I don't know the exact name, but he began shooting through them at the officers and the men. So obviously, all of the men ducked down into the snow for cover, um, ran to the sides from the tree line back to the riverbank, but two of the officers continued forward and made it to the cabin door. Um, they immediately began using the backs of their rifles to try to break the door down. And they broke it down just a tiny bit, I guess maybe like a hole. And this was where Inspector Eames was able to see inside the cabin just enough. And what he saw was that Albert Johnson was kind of hunkered down like four feet into the ground and he had made himself a little bunker down in the flooring of his cabin and above the flooring or above his little bunker was um were rows of logs that were giving him really good cover from any gunfire that was going to go in so albert johnson had all of the advantage because he had good cover the officers and the men did not and um johnson began firing from this little trench this four foot deep trench in his cabin and so the two officers who had gotten to the front door had to immediately retreat so um you might be wondering why didn't they immediately begin using the dynamite to breach a wall. That was what they had brought it for. Well, it was because the temperatures, which were around negative 50 on their journey there, had completely frozen the dynamite. So it was not, um, it wasn't usable right then. And so the men were exhausted. The temperatures outside were around negative 50 frostbite was starting to set in and the dynamite was frozen and again they couldn't really approach the cabin without risking serious injury or death because albert johnson had cover he had all the advantage and so they decided to set up camp for the night to try to get warm um 
and defrost the dynamite. And so, um, as soon as the dynamite was defrosted, their plan was to not kill Johnson with it. They wanted to take him alive. So, the plan was to just try to use it to, like, break a hole down or, I guess, breach a hole just to be able to get in there and get Johnson out. However, they quickly realized that just throwing the dynamite at the cabin didn't really do a whole lot because it would just explode, but it wasn't really breaking a wall or a hole down enough to get him out. So one of the officers suggested um, I should try to get up on the roof and use dynamite up there to try to blast a hole. So this really brave officer made his way to the cabin roof, used a stick of dynamite, I guess, and blasted a hole. Um, and he said that as soon as like all the smoke and the debris cleared, he got a clear view of Johnson, like hunkered down in his little trench. He was holding a sawed-off shotgun in one hand and a revolver in the other. So it was good, I guess, that they knew, like, what kind of weapons he had, but he immediately began firing up to the roof at the officer, so the officer had to get off and retreat really quickly. So they didn't really have any other option but to just keep using all of the dynamite, which they did, and, um, eventually when they had used it all, Eames said, okay, me and another officer are going to go forward and we're going to try and get in. So the officer that went with him was holding a flashlight and Inspector Eames said, shine it into the cabin when we get up there so that I can see our targets. And when they got close enough, the officer turned his light on and it was immediately like blasted out of his hand by Johnson's rifle. So they had to retreat again. And that was when, um, Inspector Eames called it. He said, this is not working. Um, his men were frostbitten. They were out of supplies. They had no more dynamite. They didn't have much food left. The dogs were freezing. So he called it. He said, we need to get out of here because it's too dangerous. I'm not risking our lives anymore. We have to go back to Aklavik, get some more supplies and more men. So they left. So yeah, they got back to Aklavik. They gathered more men, a larger search group, or it hadn't turned into a search yet, but they got more men, more supplies, and when they were ready, again, they traveled all the way back to Albert Johnson's cabin. When they arrived, they said that it was obvious, like, before they had even approached the cabin again, that it just kind of emanated, like, an empty feeling. They, they knew that Johnson had left and he had abandoned his cabin. 
So they were able to go inside and take a look around. And from what I understand is that Johnson had made the entire floor on the inside of the cabin into little like mini bunkers or trenches. Um, and they all perfectly fit an adult. So it wasn't just like one big bunker dug into the ground four feet down. It was like individual little trenches that were made for cover. And he had lined all of the trenches with, um, what are they called? Spruce boughs, which are apparently pretty common to use as flooring. Like, I guess when you're out in the wilderness. And then each bunker also had a fire pit built into it, which was at the back of each bunker, which would make the heat kind of reflect back inside. So he had been really prepared to fight, I guess that's what you could say. And so they were, the men were like dead certain that because it was the middle of a Canadian Arctic winter, it was sub-zero temperatures, um, raging snowstorms, and now Albert had abandoned his cabin, so he had minimal supplies, he had no shelter, he clearly didn't have dogs or a sled or anything like that. Eames and the rest of the men were like, there's no way he's gonna survive. Like, he, he's not going to survive for very long. This is going to be really easy to find him. He had no food as well. No supplies, no food. No means of traveling very far. And he was going to have to do some hunting or trapping just to survive because of the number of calories that your body is going to burn in those temperatures. So it's not like he was going to be able to hunker down in like a cave or something. He was going to have to come out and survive. And also, um, another reason why they were so certain that they were going to find him really quickly was the fact of their current location. So their current location along the Rat River was on a half mile wide canyon floor. So this canyon had walls on either side of it that were incredibly tall. Some spots that even rose to like over 600 feet. So they were so, so confident that all they had to do was just kind of travel down the canyon and they were going to find Johnson. That's all they had to do was just walk and they'd find him hiding somewhere. But they were very wrong. So every once in a while they did find Johnson's tracks and it became apparent um, kind of how he had been eluding them. So apparently he had been traveling on something called glare ice during the day and then at nighttime they figured that he had been traveling um, up creeks and riverbeds and what he would do is he would leave tracks in the snow 
and then he would pick a campsite and he would walk all around the campsite to make it look like he was there and then he would backtrack so he would walk backwards on his own tracks and then he would camp just off the little trail that he had made so if anybody had been following his tracks he would be able to see them coming and he would ambush them so they figured that was how he had been avoiding them for days and days and days so far so it wasn't until january 28th um when members of the search party finally laid eyes on johnson again he had been eluding them for a really long time so the men had um split into pairs to try to look for him just to try and cover more ground so a pair of um, men who were part of the search party they had been searching on top of i guess cliffs along the canyon and one of the men he noticed um smoke rising from a campfire and he noticed this in are coming up from a gorge and the gorge is like the narrow part of a canyon where it comes up on either side like that so he saw campfire smoke coming rising from one of those and he like knew instantly that has to be johnson because nobody else in their right mind would be out here in these temperatures right now so he calls his search buddy over and they very quietly creep along the top of the cliff that they're on to look down into the gorge and they just like they knew they would there was johnson sitting around his campfire and it was clear that he had not left any tracks like on the outside of his little camp area just like they had suspected so if you had walked like past his camp area he had made sure not to leave any tracks to his little side hiding area if that makes sense i'm sorry <laughs> I, i'm assuming you know what i mean anyways um these two men who had found him they weren't actually police officers and so i think they were concerned that if they actually engaged in a firefight with johnson they could get into a lot of trouble so they didn't want to risk like any um manslaughter charges or anything like that so they actually went back to find um, a police officer in the search party and so they met up with um, a police officer by the name of constable millen as well as one other gentleman so the next morning the four of them hatched a plan to travel down the cliff and ambush johnson in the morning hope hoping that he was still in the camp so um what they did is the two original men who found him they went down the cliff and they hid kind of in the tree line which was just behind johnson's camp and they got ready with their guns and 
They were there to give cover to the officer and the other gentleman. When they were in position, um, I guess they signaled, and the officer and his partner came down the cliff. I don't think they meant to do this. I think it was an accident, but when they came down the cliff, they did so very, very loudly. Um, I think this, like the sound of them coming down the cliff either woke Johnson up or maybe just startled him enough or something, but out of nowhere, Johnson appears in the camp and he throws himself into a trench, another trench, that was barricaded with a fallen tree. So I don't know if Albert Johnson, like in every camp that he stopped in, he literally built cover for himself, or if this just happened to maybe be there from the snow, I don't know. But again, Johnson was in a position where he had cover and shelter, and again, approaching him was going to be the most dangerous outcome. So Johnson was in the, he's in the trench, and he has his rifle with him ready to go, and he is pointing his rifle through the fallen tree at Officer Millen. Officer Millen orders him to put the gun down, and... Johnson fires. He immediately fires and he strikes Officer Millen in the chest. The other officers immediately drag him to cover, um, or the other gentlemen, sorry. They drag him to cover and unfortunately that gunshot wound was almost instantly fatal because Officer Millen passed away right there. Um, the three men didn't really have much choice but to kind of hunker down only a few yards away from the trench because I guess um, it was just too dangerous to try to move or to try to approach Johnson. And it's pretty, reading the description of this was pretty eerie because here they are with their fallen officer, their fallen companion who had passed, and the person who had killed him was literally only a few yards away, and they knew that he was still there because he was coughing. They said coughing really loudly throughout the night, so I don't know if that meant like maybe the elements were starting to make him sick or something like that, but for some reason they couldn't go and get him at that point. And of course, um, Johnson was able to slip away in the middle of the night. So the next morning he was gone and they had no idea which direction he had gone in. And so the next morning, um, they meet up with the rest of the search group, again, including Inspector Eames. And, um, the good thing now was that they had... A pretty big advantage over Johnson because Inspector Eames had sought the help of a World War One ace pilot. His name was Captain Wilfred R. May, also known by his nickname of WAP, 
WOP. And he was called by Inspector Eames all the way from Edmonton, Alberta, um, to ask for his help in this search. And he became the first pilot in history to directly help authorities in a manhunt. So, um, yeah, he was literally a game changer for the search party because Captain May was was now able to, you know, fly officers and the search parties to different areas and they could now... They just had it much easier with the search because instead of just, like, blindly walking around searching for his tracks, Captain May could go into the sky, look for the tracks, and then drop the men off in that area. Um, and he could also obviously bring supplies, and he had the best aerial views of the entire area to help find the tracks and help track down where Johnson was or where he was heading. And on February 12th, WAP found Johnson's tracks from his plane and they were on a very high peak and it was clear that Albert Johnson was probably trying to head for an area called Bell Pass. Um, and they knew that this probably meant that he was trying his best to make his way to Alaska. So on February 14th, WAP, um, he sighted Johnson's tracks again in an area where the Eagle and the Bell Rivers join. Um, unfortunately, he was, he had to stay grounded that day because of really bad storms, but that allowed Inspector Ames and his group to travel up the Eagle River knowing that they were like right on Johnson's trail. So this was like literally a game changer because on February 16th, so the group had been following those tracks for two days, um, members of the group were walking on the trail that they were following they came around a bend in the frozen river and just a little tiny ways up in front of them they saw a man walking backwards and it was Johnson and he was backtracking trying to hide his trail so Johnson immediately knew that it was the authorities and he right away tried to run and they said that he tried to go up a really steep bank but it was clear that um, either because it was too steep or he was too weak he didn't make it so he pulled out his rifle and he began firing at the group as he continued to run away from them so he would turn around and fire and then run a man by the name of officer Hersey another police officer commanded him to stop and surrender, but Johnson refused. So Hersey, as well as the rest of the team, began firing at him. Um, Johnson, it said that he stopped, got down into the snow on his stomach, and he continued to fire at the group. 
and it was only like moments later when an officer in the search party fired and that bullet severed Johnson's spine as he was turning around trying to reload his rifle. So Johnson had died, I think, almost instantly. In the battle um, that finally stopped Johnson, Officer Hersey had been shot by Johnson, and the bullet had had um, pierced his lungs, and he said that he hadn't even really noticed it at first, I guess because of the adrenaline, but he was hemorrhaging really badly. But thank God, um, Captain May, he had been flying over them for the whole day, and he had landed. He had run to Captain Hersey, Captain Hersey, given him a sedative, gotten him into his plane, and flown him back to Aklavik, where a doctor saved his life. So Officer Hersey survived. And so, um, the man that had eluded the RCMP for weeks in this devastating, empty Canadian landscape that is, like, colder and more dangerous than a planet in our solar system. He had finally been stopped. Even the local First Nations people who had called this area of Canada home for so long, they had said that there was absolutely no way that Johnson should have been able to survive for as long as he did. And somehow, he had, and he had actually almost made it all the way to Alaska. So this man's drive for survival was just incredible, despite the weather, the storms, the temperatures. He had actually survived for over seven weeks with minimal supplies. Um, when they approached his body, they searched his backpack, and it contained a razor, a comb, a mirror, needles and threads, um, an oily rag, fish hooks, wax, matches, nails, an axe, a pocket compass, 19 shells, a knife made from an old trap spring, he had five freshwater pearls on him, um, some gold dust, $2,400 in bills, and he also had two gold teeth that didn't come from him. So, yeah, he didn't have um, a whole lot of survival equipment to be able to survive for that long. So it's pretty incredible. And, yeah, the identity of who Albert Johnson was is still a complete mystery that nobody has yet been able to crack. In 2009, a forensic team, they actually exhumed Johnson's body from its gravesite in Aklavik in order to test his DNA. 
this had been attempted before however um the i guess council or the people who run aklavik had voted against it but this particular team in 2009 had said that they would exhume johnson's body with as much dignity and respect as was needed to exhume a dead body that they finally agreed to let them do it so they said that they would um you know have a priest there with them and they would also rebury him in a new coffin and it would just be done with as much respect as possible so they were hoping to extract dna from his teeth or his hair, I believe, to find out who he was, or at least just maybe his country of origin. But really, all the results were able to do um, was disprove Johnson's relation to 12 families who they had thought were very likely relatives of his, and it turned out he wasn't relatives of them. So they, um, yeah, they, we still don't know who he is. <laughs> so many theories obviously arose following Johnson's death, as well as many claims to who he was. Some say that he was a man from Scandinavia who had moved to Canada and some say that he was even a Canadian who had lost the love of his life and this had driven him to pure madness. Some claim that he was a businessman who had murdered his business partner and he was on the run from the law for committing that crime and that was where the two gold teeth had come from that they had found on his person. Others say that he was possibly a deserter, so he was on the run from that. And then some say that he was probably a soldier suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And this could have possibly explained why he was so protective of himself and prepared to fight to the death, even though no danger was really present. Remember, they only wanted to talk to him on a simple trapping matter that could have been resolved very easily. But yeah, nobody knows if any of those theories are true. Nobody knows who Albert Johnson was or where he came from or why he led the RCMP on the largest manhunt ever conducted in Canadian history. Thank you so much for watching. I hope you found this really interesting as well as relaxing. Stay safe, stay fascinated, and I will see you in the next video. Bye!